What is going on, everybody? We have a special episode of the Christian Hunters of America podcast today. We are going to be doing a recap of the September rut hunt that uh, quite a few of our members were on. Several members all had the same unit and the same archery bull elk tag. Uh, We're going to be doing a recap and talking about tactics, talking about the fellowship, talking about what it takes to uh, be successful in a big group, and uh, how everybody's kind of doing different uh, rock, paper, scissors to pick which way you're going to go or the scouting that takes place prior to so that you guys aren't making uh, real quick decisions the night of. You guys kind of have a game plan ahead of it, but we're going to be recapping with Mike and Howard and Steve, three of the guys who had those uh, tags, and uh, it'll be a fun episode. We get to share some laughs. We get to share some ups and downs. And it's just real life. Uh, We hope you enjoy this episode. Thank you. Welcome to another episode of the Christian Hunters of America podcast. We have an elk recap episode where several members of CHA all had archery elk tags at the end of September, beginning of October. It was a very successful camp. Um, Had some other fellow CHA members come up and help, but we're going to do a recap and talk about different tactics, what it takes uh, to hunt out of camp and to put on kind of like a a big group when multiple people have a tag uh, together in the same unit. So without further ado, we have Mikey. Hello, hello. We got Howard. Hello. And we got Steve on the phone. How are you, brother? Doing good. All three of them had tags. Um, They were in northern Arizona along with a couple other guys. All three of these individuals all three cha members uh tagged out and um let's start off with what you guys started doing in june and july what kind of uh, scouting what kind of game plan did you guys come up once you guys found out you guys all had archery tags in the same unit all right howard so i would say it actually started probably when we first found out that we our credit cards were hit and we knew we were going then we found out we drew the unit that we hunted in, and I would say scouting started probably April, mid-April. Okay. And so the scouting started by e-scouting. So what I know is I like to scout and figure out logistics based on water, terrain, where I believe the rut's going to be, where the cows are going to be congregated. And then the other part was is I haven't hunted this unit for elk personally for over 20 years. But Howard and Steve both have hunted this in the past and helping out fellow CHA members and had a really good understanding and, and knew the area. And then here I come along and say, hey, we're going we're gonna to change it up and go somewhere completely different and let's try something different. So, so how about, what do you think, Howard? So talk about having to know an area, then to be flexible, to think outside the box, to try something completely different that's not part of the norm when you actually have an elk area figured out. Well, yeah, you hit it right on the head. We... 
I was blessed to have this tag in 21 um, and 16. In 16 and 21 hunt, I hunted on the east side of the unit, but we also got some information that they were going to be do, doing some thinning projects in that side of the unit, meaning basically restoring the forest back to a better habitat and those kind of things. So we shifted our game plan to the west side of the unit because we didn't want to be archery elk hunting in a thinned out unit because it would have been much more difficult to harvest an animal or have success in that kind of environment. Um, So we went away from an area that we knew really, really well. Um, Had spent multiple days there the last two seasons. Steve had a tag there last year. Um, me and Scott had a tag there two years before. And like I said, I hunted there in 16 with a couple other guys and we knew the area inside and out, knew all the water holes, knew the valleys, knew, you know, everything about that side of the unit. And then, you know, with them coming in and doing the foresting projects that they're doing in that area, we decided to move to the West side, but, um, it didn't hurt us a bit, which was nice. But again, the East scouting was critical finding out, you know, just, hours and hours of driving and riding and staying on roads and hiking in and, and e-scouting all the little water tanks, marking them on Onyx, and then going investigating them on multiple trips just to see which ones were holding water, which ones weren't holding water, some that we thought were going to be really good, dried up, some that we thought were going to be like, eh, this one's not going to be really good because it's right by a major road, so to speak. You know, we're holding water and holding a ton of elk sign. Um so it was kind of interesting to see. And then, you know, all the way up to, what, the weekend before the hunt, right? We went up on Saturday the weekend before the hunt yep. and drove, what, 14 <clears throat> hours? Yep. Yeah. <laughs> Spent in the woods on Saturday, got there bright, bright and early Saturday morning, first light, and started making some bugles and seeing where bu- bulls were and just chasing and seeing where bugles were coming from. So it was crazy. Yeah, exactly. And that's that's a key point is is hunting where the elk are and not assuming where the elk are. So the other dynamic is anybody that knows Steve, and he's been a member of CHA and DCA when we were for 20 years, is Steve and Howard like the remoteness of a camp, which a lot of people like to be in the popular spots where there's a lot of traffic and dust and people. It just seems like that's the natural when you drive down the forest road. There's all these camps on top of each other. So so the other part of logistics is we wanted to semi be off grid, which is really tough in public land, especially in Arizona. So do you want to kind of talk about that side of finding a camp that you can actually walk out of camp and have opportunity, Steve? Yeah, I, I think a lot of it is 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 uh, the the remoteness just adds to the hunt as well because you don't have someone blasting down up and down the road um, if you're on a, a main road kicking up dust all over your camp. So having something off a main road is nice for that, but it also gets you, I think it gets you closer to, to where you want to be in the morning. If you can ideally get on something um, like an edge of a Canyon, then you can with, with multiple fingers coming off of it, you can kind of pick and choose it where you're hearing bugles on which way you want to jump off and go after them. Exactly. And I think that kind of talks about like where we finally settled on a camp. It was right up against a, a big canyon wall. So if you think about elk and, and bulls, typically the bulls, they like to live in the big canyons. They like to get away from everything. They don't like to be showcasing themselves, except for in the early summer when they're when they're growing, they're putting the velvet, you know, they, they could care less and they want to be in the, the meadows. But typically big bulls, they want to be in the secluded, deepest canyons, thickest stuff and kind of isolated and where we picked the camp, it was almost kind of comical because we were 
camped right on top of a, of a big canyon wall. And I know f- specifically I would be leaving camp about 4.30 and you guys are basically grabbing your, your lounge chairs and chairs and kind of walking 100 yards from camp to sit upon this canyon wall and, and, and ready to go hunting. I mean, how many guys go elk hunting and they basically walk out of camp and sit down on a lounge chair saying, all right, it's opening morning, I'm going elk hunting. I'll let you, I'll let you guys kind of talk about that a little bit. Yeah, yeah, that's the kind of stuff you see in, uh, you know, on horse packing trips where they hunt right out of camp like that. But yeah, it's kind of nice when you can find it here. You're just now for everybody that's listening, so we can paint a picture. You're grabbing just a a foldable camp chair, sitting there while it's still dark out or gray light, and you guys are just listening. And are you guys calling at that point? No, we we'd get up at four. You know, four o'clock was our normal time to get up and then we'd make coffee when Mike didn't burn the coffee pot down. Yep. Guilty. Um, and then we would, you know, Mike would leave cause he had a spot that was a couple miles away that he wanted to hunt. So he'd jump on the side by side and head to an area that he wanted to hunt. And then Steve and I kind of talked ahead of time that he and I were going to just kind of walk and hunt like we normally do. We put a ton of miles on for an old guy. I move around still pretty good. Steve, Steve tries to keep up with me. <laughs> Um, but it's tough too. Yeah. It's more the other way around, but how much, um, how much of Howard's stuff did you have to carry Steve? Yeah. Uh, in, in my truck or in my, or in my pack and you both. Oh, <laughs> uh, well actually he lightened my load cause he stole half my stuff. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> That's another story. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so we would get up at four. Mike would jump in the side by side. He was out of camp by four twenty, four fifteen, somewhere around there. And Steve and I would grab a cup of coffee, and we legitimately would walk fifty yards from camp yeah. and sit on the edge of this canyon and and wait for turn, him to start yeah. bugling, and then make turn a game off, plan. Turn off the gas lanterns to make it as quiet as possible, and just listen. Yeah. And these are all things that you guys have formulated while you're sitting around campfire, while you're cooking dinner the night before. This isn't stuff that you guys are coming up with on the spur of the moment, no, right? It was, it was based on our campsite. We had e-scouted and walked and driven a ton of that area. So we knew where the water tanks were. We knew where the wallows were. You knew where the cows were. We knew where the cows were because we'd seen them all summer. So we know where there are cows, there's bulls. And so that's the biggest thing. Plus this rut hunt, we were blessed this year that they pushed it in this particular unit. They pushed it back. Um, so normally in Arizona, it's, you know, first first week and a half of September is when the hunt starts for archery. This one didn't start till September 22nd. So it was thick rut time, ideal hunt for us. Um, what dreams are made of when you wake up in the morning. Yeah, so we knew the bulls were going to be, you know, in the canyons, on the meadows, on the top during the nighttime, but then move into bedding areas, you know, in the morning hours. So we set up purposely our camp and our logistics of where we were going to even start thinking they might be based on, you know, where the canyon was, where the water was in the canyon, where the water was up on top of the canyon. So when we sat down, we kind of knew, okay, yeah, that bugle over there, yeah, it's worth chasing. That bugle over there, nope, he's a mile and a half away on the other side of the canyon, and it was 400 feet elevation change from the top to the bottom, and, and then back up. And then back up again. And no roads at the bottom. So if you got one down in there like Mikey did, um, yep. you know, yep. you're humping it out on your back. Not that we're opposed to that, but we'd prefer not to have that kind of hike out if we don't have to. So the neat thing was just having that ability to have a camp like that. And that's 
on the eastern side of the unit, that's how Steve and I did the last two years of hunting was that exact way. We we drove very little in that hunt, probably two days. We actually drove just because of wind, and we drove around to a spot just so because the wind shifted a little bit, and we wanted wind in the morning to be proper to go after the bulls. But otherwise, we we prefer to hunt out of camp. You know, like Steve said, it's kind of like backcountry hunting in Arizona as best as you can get. Exactly. So so I would be leaving and there'd be bulls screaming, you know, in a lot of different directions from camp. And that was kind of the idea was is to be in a an isolated area the best we can on public land, to be protected where it's, it's like a, a dead end road <clears throat> to where the camp is based on you can walk out and not have any roads by you. But then the flip side is the roads that come in, they're kind of a a, a rutting area that's it's more flat per se, where a lot of cows are, where the bulls are coming up, grabbing the cows and rutting. And it's like where I wanted to hunt was actually, as the road went, it was about a four-mile half-loop circle. And then I would get on uh, kind of stage and kind of chase the bugles in, in the dark and kind of stage. And what was interesting was on the second morning, so imagine Steve and Howard sitting up on their lounge chair, listening to all the bugles, making their which way they're going to go. And on this particular day, all the bugles and all the rut was actually back the direction that I was actually heading to four miles in a different direction. And what we didn't know over between 4 a.m. and I think when we finally saw each other was probably 10 a.m., we actually looped into each other at a four, well, roughly four miles from where I started to where I ended up hiking. Then from where they were in camp back to me was probably a mile and a half. We actually got on the same big group of, of elk bugling and frenzying and cows. So you guys want to kind of talk about how you would leave camp and then all of a sudden here's this other hunter you know on the same bulls and everything else so it's kind of interesting that the dynamics you, you go where the elk are you know that's a really key point of elk hunting is just follow the elk and they're going to lead you to where they're going so yeah so it was interesting we it was on saturday that my two boys and scott had come up and steve and i decided to hunt the flats instead of dropping off into the canyons um, and we were chasing bugles um, because they were bugling actually behind the canyon, which was they didn't do that on Friday, but they did that on Saturday. So we went out walking. You know, there was a group of five of us, Steve, right? Yeah, there was five of us walking. Yeah, there was five of us, yeah. Yeah, and so Steve and I had tags. The other three guys were just, you know, along for the ride, which was great to have my kids and Scott along with us, and, and we're chasing, and, and then Mike had gone two and a half, three miles away and heard some bulls and stopped and started hunting one bull and then chased another bull. And I took a shot at one poorly, missed, and legitimately 35 to 45 seconds later, it felt like it was probably two minutes, Mike and um, Nate, who were together on that morning, come walking through the woods at about 80 yards. And Mike was in... Uh, not a good mood um, <laughs> yep. for, for some other reasons we will go into today. Yep. Um, you'll have to ask that per story yep. when you talk to him. Oh, yep. we'll, we'll get to that. Yeah. Yep. But um, yeah, we waved. I turkey called at him. They saw us. They kind of like looked at us and Mike was like, I don't want to talk to some other hunters. He didn't re realize it was even us. Um, <laughs> so he kind of walked away and we we're like, Steve and I kind of looked at each other cause we were closest together and like, Oh, that was kind of rude. Cause Normally, you know, other hunters right there that close would yep. at least say hi and figure out which way they're going. So you go the opposite way. So you're not on top of each other. And they just kind of walked away and they weren't going the way we were going. So it was fine. But yeah, we got back to camp and 
started talking about these idiots in the woods that we saw that wouldn't even friendly and wouldn't talk to us. And then like Mike goes, Oh, that was us. Yeah. That was me. Guilty. <laughs> yep. And and what's interesting is, is to come in at, there was probably 60 elk in there and there was a bunch of bulls and the key to elk hunting is win, win, win. <clears throat> the wind is so critical keeping that wind in your face where they can't smell you. And what's interesting is you have basically a group of five hunters, you know, two hunters with, with three companions coming along, then plus I had myself and another CHA guy. So we had seven bodies in this area, and based we are all working the wind together, and every one of us potentially had shots on, you know, big mature bulls and cows, and it was two hours of just bugling and chasing. So, so the takeaway exactly. is going to be if you keep the wind and you're chasing, you're staying with the elk, the elk will let you kind of dive in, dive out, and play, and that's kind of exactly what we were doing. And as everything kind of came to an end, it was probably getting close to 9 o'clock and everything was being quiet. At that point, I, I realized I had about a, a three-and-a-half-mile hike to get back, and I was like, crap, you know, I don't feel like dealing with this. But the, the short story was that morning I, I wrecked my ranger, and, and then – you know, let's at, at let's not point, r- let's not rush this. Let's yeah, this exactly. this is a good story. <laughs> let's dig into that, Chet. No. Let's let's yeah. dig into this. <laughs> well, um, well, the story is mainly is sometimes you know lemons come along. You got to make lemonade, and we, we had two choices. I was halfway to the point that I wanted to be on Saturday morning, an hour before daylight, and we hit a stump. And next thing you know, we kind of went through the windshield, and my my bike is broke. So the two options is we go hunting. Or we sit and cry about it, walk back to camp. We're like, you know what? Let's just start walking, and I know there's elk. We go to this direction, and, you know, 45 minutes later, the sun's coming up, and we spent three hours chasing elk. So I think for me, when kind of that, that point of the elk kind of got quiet, it was like the, the reality of, crap, my ranger's broke, my head hurts. We've been, we're, we got three miles to hike back, and I just want to get back to camp and deal with reality. You know, it's, it's an interesting dynamic, but <clears throat> but that's the cool thing about elk hunting is, you get into elk and you forget about the everything that happens in life. You know <clears throat> what could have been a really bad thing. We we kind of turned it into and you know I could have had shots and Howard did have a, a shot at a really good bull and, and that's what it's about. So what do you, what do you think, Steve? <clears throat> yeah, that yeah, that that was that was really good. One thing that you uh, you really hit on that's so important and you talk about the wind. You can pull a lot of things on an elk. You can pull their eyes. You could you could fool their ears, but you're never going to fool their nose. So, getting that wind right is critical, and then knowing what that wind's going to do because you're right about seven eight o'clock. That's when that wind is going to start changing too. Yep, those thermals are going to start changing. So you you know you may have good wind, but you always got to check it because that, that wind can change really quickly. Exactly, and I think that's a, a great point because. As long as you have the wind in your face, we're getting busted constantly. The elk know that we're with them. They're seeing us. <clears throat> Cows are freezing. Satellite bulls are seeing us. But if you just stop and you freeze and just don't move and you wait you know, 30 seconds to two, three minutes, those elk just forget, and then they just move on, and you're right back in the game. Okay. So so the, the key part is if you get caught, don't just throw your hands up and rush to them. Just freeze, stand still, don't move. Just be like a statue. Then all of a sudden, it's almost like they forget, and then the elk are moving, and they're and they're they're going. So yeah, one thing that one thing I learned from Mike years ago that I still haven't done yet, which is on me, but he ties a piece of thread on the end of his stabilizer to instead of having the wind puffy checker thing that I always carry and use that seemed like a lot. But the nice thing is, is he doesn't have to worry about having his hands off his bow. He can just hold his bow out a little bit 
watch that piece of string hanging off the end of it and see which way the wind's blowing. So he constantly knows, especially in those critical moments when you're, you know, 70 plus or 70 under yards from an elk and you're like, oh, what did the wind do? You know, most of us feel it on the back of your neck or your cheek or something and go, oh, crud, I just got busted. Mike at least can pull his bow out a little bit and know, know whether the wind's shifted or not shifted a little bit. So kind of a neat little tip yeah. for you guys out there that are tree hunters. Exactly. And, then, and, and the point is, is when you're doing that, you're basically zigzagging. So you're never going in a straight line at the elk. You're always zigzagging back and forth and backing up and turning around and so whatever the wind is playing, you're constantly moving back and forth. So sometimes your direct line might be 200 yards, but you end up doing 600 yards just because of the zigzagging back and forth. Yeah. And one of the neat things, like we said, we had four tags in camp, four different hunters. Steve and I like to hunt together um, just from the fellowship aspect of it and, and chasing bulls and stuff like that. So we kind of work out a hierarchy system like, okay, it'll be your turn to shoot this morning or my turn to shoot this morning or whatever it is. Little rock paper scissors. Uh, yeah, basically. Yeah, you yeah. come up. You got to come up with a plan, right? Who's on point? Who's going to be first shooter? Who's going to be second shooter? Type of thing. Um, but it's neat I, because the area we were yeah. in, we were we were able to do that. We had four guys that had tags. We could go four different directions if we wanted to. Um, and then at one point, we had a total of eight guys in camp, and everybody went out. Yep. Um, that was a cool thing too. It was like it's a neat fellowship when Mike and Nate were out yep. together. Steve and I were together with. You know, then my two boys showed up with Scott. Um, and it worked, too. We, we yeah. made it work. Yeah. So don't be afraid to take people out with you. Um, you know, everybody goes, oh, they're going to make too much noise. Or, you know, they're not going to make too much noise. At least they shouldn't. I mean, you're not going to want to drag a, a three-year-old out there or something like that well, that's going to be crying or screaming. Like you but. said, the, the smell, the nose is the biggest thing. They're making a lot of noise when they're walking through the leaves, the bulls, whether the herd bull or not. They're making lots of noise, running back and forth, and yeah, even the cows are. They're walking around. You know, if, if the herd bull, right, you know, has fifteen cows, and you know, five guys, you know, walking through the woods is going to make a whole lot less noise than fifteen, twenty elk walking together. Right, exactly. You never worry about noise for the most part; just the wind. I mean, because as long as you're walking and, and you're freezing, you can spend a lot of time with elk. I mean, hours and hours with elk for sure. <clears throat> so walk us through. Um, Howard was the first one to tag out, right? So let's let's back up. So a, a key point is going to be water. So water is so essential because elk are water dogs. And sometimes we forget how dependent elk are. And if you find good water tanks, um, they are fantastic for afternoon hunts. So, so a key point, especially in Arizona, is to chase bugles and just hunt and have a great time chasing. But as soon as it becomes the afternoon, you know, 1, 2 o'clock, you're going to get on these water tanks that the elk love. So, so always know that whenever you have an elk hunt, you know, go enjoy elk hunting, you know, to the full. Then it's time to go sit water. So, so now we're going to kind of talk about a little bit about. <clears throat> and you, had, you're saying that because they've shut up and they're not talkative as much, right? Yeah, that they're right. laying down. It's hot. They're bedding down. They usually don't start bugling until like an hour before it gets dark, and, and it's, it's really tough sometimes to get on elk. So, But they are moving during the day. They'll they'll bed down, you know, let's yeah. say they bed down at 10 o'clock, just for an example. You know, they may get up at noon and go get a drink of water and come back and bed somewhere else. So, you know, that's why, like we did, we sat water most afternoons because you can't chase them because they're not talking. You might get dumb luck and, and bump into one. But, you know, the, the higher percentage is sitting water, being patient, and then 
you know, right before dark, you know, maybe that last hour before dark when or before shooting light ends, you know, if you hear bugles away from water, because like Steve and I had one night, we were sitting in a wallow. They weren't coming to the wall. They were bugling like crazy all around it. When we should have, in hindsight, we should have gotten up and chased them. Um, the wind was good enough for us to do that, but we just we thought they were coming in because they kept getting closer and closer and closer. And you just kind of, but we didn't walk out of there till dark. But as soon as it got dark, and we got what maybe two hundred yards away from the water, Steve up the hill. Oh yeah, yeah. They they dropped right down in there. Yeah. Um, but they and, weren't coming in in daylight. So nope. So and and that's what we talked about. We we talked about if we were going to go back that same area, we drop we drop in there and then wait till they started doing what they were doing and just go after them. Yep. And then, so we're we've talked about the game plan, scouting ahead of time, what you're going to do in the morning, who's going to shoot first, and then what the game plan is in the afternoon once they've been quiet. Well, I, I don't know if we talked about who shoots first a lot, but what I usually do is I just refer to my elders. Well, and, uh, we do let have them go first. We do have one person here that's <laughs> considerably older than everybody else. So exactly, he, he, <laughs> exactly, age before beauty. Yep, right. exactly, exactly. <laughs> so exactly. Howard will always shoot first as long as I'm on a hunt. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> it is true. Yep. So as it relates to water, so we pre-scouted probably six to ten different water tanks that that had a lot of elk sign um, that we knew there was elk there. We seen them, you know, we jumped elk off of them. So from there, we just kind of just each night we'd pick where everybody wanted to sit and we'd just go sit. So, um, and we did have a few tanks that were producing a lot of elk and it was interesting. So I'd go sit and I'm like, Hey, there's I passed this bull. And next thing you know, Steve's like, Hey, I'm gonna go sit that. Then once he sat it and then Howard's like, yeah, I'm going to go sit that one now. So it's, it's kind of the hierarchy of, you know, of who gets to sit where, but, it, but it's an interesting dynamic that, Water is so key, and if you just dedicate to water, it's going to produce. So I'll let kind of Steve and Howard just kind of talk about sitting because I was even shocked because I think on that second night, Howard sat a tank and passed, what, three bulls? Great bulls, I think it was. Well, or, I, Yeah. Well, I passed three smaller bulls than the one I ended up getting. So they were great bulls, but they were much smaller than the one I ended up getting. But it was like, what, a 5 by 6 There was a 5 by 5 and – yeah, there was a five by six that Steve ended up getting eventually, um, a five by five, and then a nice six by six came in. But some weirdest thing I've ever seen in the woods personally was he was, I could see him out the one blind window and he was coming to the water and he locked up at about 80 yards away from the water and some turkey started squawking at him like crazy and he just kind of went away. I've never seen turkeys chase elk off of anything ever. It was most bizarre thing hens ever. Hens are... No, they were gobblers. They were, you know, squawking hens and gobblers. They were, there was probably 10 of them behind me. You could hear them just going, wah, 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 wah. and like the elk just kind of turned his head, looked at him, and like went, I'm not having any of this, and he walked away from the water, which was... Wow. Yeah, it was weird. I thought it was going to have a shot at that one, for yep. sure. Yep, and that's an interesting point, is if you find a good water, a lot of these bulls will hit those, that's their water tank. So if you're patient, even though you may pass a bull, that same bull will give you another opportunity in the future. So you want to talk about that, Steve um, <clears throat> and Howard, how you guys actually saw the same bulls on two different tanks and had different opportunities. Yeah, it's, uh, I think what's one thing when you're talking about blind hunting and one of the benefits of it is it's going to hide a lot of your movement. Probably more important, it's going to contain your scent. Um, the one reason we're seeing a lot of the same bulls over and over again is we're not blowing them out of there 
Um, we're keeping as many windows closed as we can in the blind. We're sitting as far back in the blind as we can in the shadows. Um, we're also, when you do that, you need to make sure you can, you can draw your bow back still and not hit the back of the blind. So you need to, um, <laughs> that's, um, <clears throat> that's critical too. That's yeah. true. That that's is that's very important. critical. Can you, um, I, I know someone that can you that. elaborate on that, Steve? I, I, I think you're, you're insinuating oh. something happened, but I, I'm just, could you, uh, yeah. Could you elaborate, know, please? Was it day, I don't know. Was this day 40 or, yeah, or four? Felt, I can't remember. Felt like day 40. <laughs> I know. So, um, we had, I think we had just done our, been out in the morning and heard all the bugles that we could hear. It was quiet then. And I said, well, let's just walk back this way. And, uh, as we were walking back towards where I had parked or back towards camp, I think we parked there. Yeah. Anyways, we're walking back and we had heard a bugle. It looked like it was coming towards one of these tanks and we knew we had a blind on there. So we jumped in there. Um, I did as best job I could video and then we saw those bull come in as a nice, I don't know, was it five by six or no, it was six it was by small, six, but yeah, small, it was a small six, six small yeah. six. He came in, Howard goes to pull his bow back and, uh, he repositioned his chair about that same time and hit that back of that blind and that bull swapped ends <laughs> real quickly. And, and that was it. I think I have video of that. We might have to put that on social media just strictly for uh, training purposes only. Educational. Yeah, Educational. <laughs> we've but, all, yeah, we've but, all done that. Yeah, but yeah, that's definitely an important thing to do. But yeah, blinds are so deadly. They keep your scent in. Um, Spe- yeah, being patient. Speaking that's, that's of, big thing. did any of you guys have any of the see-through blinds? No. No? No. No. All right. We're we're more blue collar hunters. I none of us have one. I'm just <laughs> in case anyone uh, if it if it helped. I, I'm anxious to see if you could see more or you could uh, yeah. take more information in and make better game plans based on if or or would it hinder it? You're you're not seeing it. You're not getting excited as it's coming in because it's too far away. Maybe people can uh, chime in and and let us know what you guys think on these new see through blinds. But anyway. Carrying on, you capitalize on one after that. Yeah, so the bull I end up harvesting on Monday night, um, my good friend Steve on this podcast with us had, <laughs> had, had put an arrow into that same bull the night before. So unfortunately, his shot was way high, um, or fortunately for the bull, um, the shot was way high. It went through that no man's land between the spine and the, in the intestines and, and lung area. So it did not kill the bull stung him a lot. I'm sure it did not feel good for him, but we did the typical thing. We backed out for a couple hours cause he wasn't sure where he hit him. Went back in two hours later, found some blood, blood trailed it till what? 1030 at night until it got mm-hmm. to the point where we could barely see blood every 10, 15 feet. We were almost on our hands and knees crawling around looking for it and decided to back out that night so we didn't bump him if he was gut shot or something like that, and came back in, hunted the next morning, um, cause just because we wanted to give him about 10 or 12 hours to you know expire if he was gut shot or something. And then we did a huge grid search. We probably covered, what, three and a half, four miles yep. with four <laughs> of us um, doing a big grid search pattern through the area where we saw the last blood. Um, never came up with anything. Um, Steve, at that point, 
um, being the ethical hunter that he is, just because we couldn't find it doesn't mean that the animal's not dead somewhere. So Steve was done in his mind, um, yeah. you know, just based on our ethics and how we hunt. If you hit something, you don't know where it is, even though you don't find it, it's still a dead animal potentially. Um, Correct. And then so Steve and I hunted Monday morning together. Uh, we did the Monday search together along with two other guys. Mike and Nate came and helped us do the grid search. Got back to camp, had some lunch, took a nap, went back out. I went to the blind at about 2 o'clock, the same blind that Steve had sat on because it was a bunch more elk in that area that we knew. Um, so Steve stayed at camp, and I went and sat the blind, and my bull came in at, you know, 5.30 at night and was able to watch him come up over the bank and got some good pictures of him before and after. Um, shot him a little back further than I wanted to. Um, so we ended up finding him on Tuesday morning, still alive. And then we backed out for a couple hours more and came back and he had just expired probably maybe a half an hour before we walked back in on him because we had marked him. He wasn't moving anywhere, but we didn't want to chase him or make him bump and run. So we were able to, you know, find him and harvest him, um, ethically and saved all the meat, which was really a great blessing from that standpoint. Um, and then as we're doing the you know, butchering of them and the, the gutless method that we always do. And we found Steve's arrow hole in the top of them. So it was like, okay, this is the same bull you shot, Steve, unless, you know, because nobody else was hunting that area. We had not seen any other hunters in the area we were in, so we knew it wasn't another. So, you know, was able to finally, you know, capitalize on the same bull Steve had shot that basically 24 hours earlier I was able to put an arrow into and finish off. So, yeah. And none of the meat was wasted. No. Nope. <clears throat> See, and that's an interesting dynamic is, so Steve shot a bull, and from what he can remember is, it was a big wide bull, big bull, came in. I think I hit it a little high, a little far back. So he we backed out, went back in at dark, and then from there started following the blood. Then within a few hundred yards, we, we determined that potentially it's a liver hit, you know, based on the blood, or we weren't really sure, so... He says, you know what, it's time to back out, and it's just, it's just, you know, give it. Because what you don't want to do is push a bull. Because as soon as you start to push a bull, it's going to, you're, you're basically done. So so at that point, we backed out. The next morning, they went in to look at look for it, and they, you know, was able to kind of follow the blood a little bit farther, but, but the blood petered out very quickly, and there wasn't substantial blood to show that it was a kill shot. But, again, we, we were assuming because sometimes things happen so quick, and you start second-guessing. So at that point on the next morning and how we did our grid search was we each would take, we basically did a 500-yard grid search. So we'd put four of us in a line, we'd use our onyx, and we'd, we'd basically would be in sight of each other. And then we would walk 1,000 yards and basically pick that whole forest part, and then we'd do a loop back. So by doing that, we kind of determined that between these different roads, um, there was no bull in there. So then fast forward to the next day when Howard shot his, Again, we had kind of the same thing. We knew it was kind of a, a shot that wasn't, you know, because it was kind of open in the area. So we know he just it wasn't a lung shot because he would have tipped over probably in sight within 200 yards and, and looking at the blood. So we kind of thought the same thing. Was it a liver shot? A little bit. So we did the exact same thing. It was almost like we recycled the same exact thing where we, we backed out. But what was interesting is the initial blood, it was almost on top of each other. So that bull did almost the exact same flight exit paths right on top of each other. And we actually got confused a number of times because 
the blood was crisscrossing because that was the the bull's pattern. So right, right, and he ended. And boy, I, I'll yeah, I'll tell you, I was after we initially looked and we didn't find it, and I thought I lost that bull. It, 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 it's tough, but you know, if you hunt long enough, things like this happen, and you, as long as you do your due diligence, and as we did and looked. But yeah, I, you're right. I was done. It was uh, that was my hunt for the year. So, uh, what a blessing it was to to see that Howard had harvested the that bullet. I could, I'm so happy. Could have been a better person to to do that either. I'll tell you, beautiful bull. Yep. And, and the hardest part of that whole thing was that was Monday. And we had another week and a half, and all we heard about howard the whole time is all i do is shoot 300 inch big bulls and of course he was the only person in <laughs> camp so it's hard to live down when you have a legitimate 300 plus inch bull in camp and you know and this that smile you know that's what makes a holdout camp you know yep. yeah Talk, talking smack and fellowship yeah and steve i got your attorney's letter for the custody issue of the bulls so yeah. we'll have to discuss that <laughs> good yeah. yeah yep yep exactly so now fast forward now howard had sat a different water tank a couple nights earlier and passed that five by six the smaller bull and in plus saw the six by six so then so now steve proceeded over to that water tank and sat that night so tell us yep. about that steve well steve's not as picky as everybody else in camp <laughs> that is true so, uh but but yeah i um uh, i'd seen pictures of that bull i was like if he comes in i'd probably would shoot that bull and uh i sat that's i guess i sat that tank two nights um i saw that bull probably the same bull in the distance uh and he was checking cows he was probably 150 yards away from me then i got i got dark and i backed out and And these are off of videos that other guys had shown you right yeah, this was off Howard and I. We were sitting in the ground blind, and we'd be filming these videos right. and sending Steve pictures and say, we're sitting here, and this bull's got your name all over it. How can we not hear Steve to shoot this bull, you know? <laughs> I can't shoot this bull. This is a Steve bull, you know? <laughs> uh, but but that first night I sat out there, um, I, I, did, I did see, I think it was the same bull. And then second night I sat out there, it was, which was super cool night, I had a, had a muley doe and with two fawns came out of the water um ton of turkeys a lot of turkeys and then this bull came out probably probably a little bit longer than 10 minutes before last shooting light came right at the edge of the water 35 yards uh, put that arrow just right behind his shoulder and i watched him run i think about six about 60 yards and he just stood there and tipped over so that was pretty cool. Yeah, we were able to drive the Dodge right up to it and load it up in the back of the Dodge. Right. right. Yep, exactly. And, of course, as we know with Chet, he's a Chevy guy. And, of course, it, there's a lot of rumors that his Chevy truck could not have made it down that oh, track boy. road with all the rocks and, <laughs> and there's a little bit oh, and, and boy. scratching the truck and, you know, and things like that. Well, so. I think my GMC would have made it, but my wife would not have been happy. So Right. Because you actually got they, it out of the mall parking lot. She would not have been happy with you. Right. <laughs> uh, well, thank you, Howard, and the G and the. It's getting thick Dodge. in here. <laughs> exactly. So, um, so as we're cleaning up and finishing up, so, so a couple other items as it relates to elk hunting. One, um, just for our listeners, is wind, <laughs> wind, wind, wind. Scent control is number one. Water is essential. Finding critical water sources 
um, as it relates to, you know, spending your afternoons. The next part is we experienced an incredible rut hunt. Then all of a sudden the rut just kind of stopped. And that happens during a two-week season that, you know, have these fantastic days. It feels like it's invincible. And guys like myself get super picky and, you know, have all these bulls. And next thing you know, you know, it kind of slows down and you start second-guessing yourself per se. So, so as it slows down, what do we do when it slows down? I guess that would be my question for the listeners because we all go through trials and ups and downs. Is you go from 100 bugles in the morning to, like the, the morning I shot mine, there were six bugles. So, so, the, so the key part is being flexible, adapting, and, and continuing to stay where the elk are because a lot of people, when the elk shut up, they start second-guessing and leaving and doing something different. But almost always those elk are going to be in the exact same areas. They may have moved one canyon over one ridge. They could be 500,000 yards over. But the elk are there. They just kind of went quiet. So so in the case of my elk, um, I heard six bugles. Um, the fifth bugle, he was across a canyon, a deep canyon. And so I hiked down this canyon and then came back up on the other side, which took about half hour or so, and it's real thick in, in there. So once I got to the other side, I, I basically gave three cow calls, just real soft cow calls, and then immediately just like, that's, that's all PG and I heard. So we just kind of froze, and then next thing you know, since it's so thick, you can actually hear his antlers kind of coming through the brush, and I look up and the bull that I ended up shooting was actually within 100 yards where we kind of popped up and ended up making a good shot on the bull. But So a key, a key portion of elk hunting is being adaptable, and when they're not bugling, is those elk are there. It's not it's not like the social media where you got to go in there and start bugling and, and talking, and you know elk are quiet because they're quiet. So you don't want to be the, the guy that's out there bugling constantly and trying to do all these cow calls because it's unnatural. You know, there's a reason why those elk across the whole area just kind of shut up. It's not just because there's one elk that can come in there and start doing it, because it's kind of comical, because even in the same area where we started two hours prior, there was two other hunters in there, and it was like this bugling frenzy, and cows were like, yeah, those are hunters, but it's just unnatural. So so think about kind of like, like a Navy SEAL. You know, you're, they're coming in, they're sliding in, they're doing their thing, and they're getting out, and that's what you want to do when it relates to when elk hunting gets a little bit tough is just still hunt and get in the wind and just spend a lot of time in there, because I think that morning – even though I heard six bugles, we, that was the third bull, and I'd passed two bulls prior to that just because we were sneaking in on them and they were quiet. So any uh, last items, Howard or Steve? Well, and I think that your your bull you end up harvesting and the other Steve, we had actually three Steves in camp, so it was kind of interesting. Um, it was easy to remember everybody's name, at least, in camp. Right. Exactly. The, exactly. Um, the other it's, Steve. It's hard when you get as old as Yeah, as old as me. Yeah, I can't even remember my own name half the time. <laughs> exactly. But – the other Steve, when he harvested his bull, you guys were chasing bugles and chasing yep. herds. Yep. And like you said earlier, you know, you got busted a couple times, but you stopped and you were patient and you just yep. kept the wind good yeah. and you kept moving and kept moving. And, and again, none of us were trophy hunting. Um, Mike was probably yep. the pickiest. I yep. was picky on Saturday when I saw that 5x5 five five and the 6x5 only because it was the second day of the hunt and everything was just blowing up, bugles everywhere. So yep. I'm like, I know there's something bigger in here. I don't need to shoot this, you know, yep. day two. Yep. Now, if it would have been day eight or nine, yeah, I would have shot yep. both of those elk um, in a heartbeat because, again, none of us were truly trophy hunting, and that's not a trophy unit that we were in. But there's some respectable elk in that unit, um, definitely. But, you know, that's the thing, too. With the other Steve that shot, when he shot his – you guys were pursuing, and he had an yep. opportunity, and there was, what, 
three bulls with that group. Three bulls, yep. Three and he, bulls. he shot the he one sh- that had the best opportunity for him to shoot at. Which was the smallest of the three bulls, and that bull still is almost you know, 290, 300 inches. I mean, a great right. bull, you know, for any standard. You know, I think sometimes we forget what a great bull is, and I know that ruins me a lot too, just the perspective. But that's a great point is is how you learn elk hunting is spending time elk hunting. And that was my number one focus is – my whole goal was, unless say just a true monster jumped out, I was going to shoot it. Otherwise, my goal was I wanted to be the last one to harvest, and I had 12 days to hunt. And the goal was I just wanted elk hunt, you know. And and the longer you're passing, and the longer you're out there, the more you're learning, you're adapting, and you know and that's what elk hunting's about. You know, it kind of that's sucked. a great point, yeah, Mike. That's a great point. Um, one thing I can add to that is it doesn't have to be your own hunt. I, I'm, I'm going to elk hunt every year, whether I have a tag or not, because I know someone has got a tag and I'm going to be out there in the woods. That's, that's how you learn. Exactly. 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 True. Yep. Yeah. And spending the time, like even I got done on Monday, but I stayed, you know, the full time that I had committed to it up front, you know, and went out on every hunt, you know, that I could go out on with you guys. Yep, again, ex- you're learning just, just being out there. Exactly. That was a whole nother week, you know, even though, you know, Howard's wife's calling, well, okay, it's two days after you shot. Aren't you coming home? Nope. Sorry, babe. I'll be there on Sunday. <laughs> I got buddies help. But, you know, but that's part of it is we all have family commitments, and sometimes the perspective is it's time to go home, but it's the fellowship, it's it's the camping, it's, it's the helping, and that's the rewards. And, and I do believe that's where I felt the pressure because it was the last day, and everybody was – most people were going home on the last day, and I had two days, and I was like, man, I can stay here. It could be Steve and I to hunt together, or I can shoot a bull, and we can all celebrate and – you know, and, and that and that bull may not been I passed much bigger bulls, but what that bull brought as a, from a fellowship and the excitement, and then having another one of our CHA members PJ with me there to be behind me, kind of watching it. You know, that's really what it's all about. You Plus, know. you wanted more bodies to help haul it out of that can. Exactly, you shot right? It. Yeah, when you're and he didn't want to. Yeah, he, he didn't want to be with me by himself. <laughs> exactly, it, it sucks bringing a, a bull elk out, especially <laughs> it's straight vertical up. You know, three four hundred yards. You're like, oh my gosh, but. But when you got four guys down there, everybody's taking a hand. It, it really helps out tremendously. So, yes, it does. Teamwork makes the dream work. And prior to Mikey closing us out, we'll we'll leave on a good note of um, Howard is so proud of this truck, and and rightfully so. He put it back together after being in the collision. But uh, Steve, I would like to know um, how did his trailer get up to camp? Oh, that. That trail. Oh shoot! I didn't even. I guess I did tow a trailer up there. It didn't hardly weigh anything. Right. At least but, with my truck, I just yanked it up there. But. Yeah, a GMC, no problem. Yanked it right uphill, and then even to get it to your house, a Chevy had to bring it there. And then the wind resistance of going home and downhill, and the Dodge just wouldn't have made it. So a Chevy had to bring it back to Howard afterwards. I just. I mean, I just wanted to clear the air. That's why it's good to have good friends. And- <laughs> <laughs> and without that trailer, we wouldn't have been eating as good as we had and had all the comforts of home that we had. So it's always good to have good friends that are willing to help you out when you get your truck. I actually got my truck back from the shop at 3.30 on Wednesday, and Steve and I left Phoenix at 5.30 on Wednesday to head up to camp. So That's awesome. Two hours to go. Actually, at 5 o'clock, I was at the DMV getting the new license plate for it. So the registration was active, so I wasn't driving illegally. So half hour before we pulled out of Phoenix, um, my truck was legal to drive up the hill. That's a heck of a hunting story. Yeah, it was a good trip. Yep, exactly. And I I think that kind of compliments, too, is Chet, 
you know, so Chet's way of elk hunting is uh, I'm not going to show up for any of the hard work, but then I'll show up the last day and I'll help you tear down camp and I'll drink <laughs> beers the night before. So, so the cool thing is you, if you and find, butcher and butcher. So if you find guys like Chet, they'll just show up like the last day and help you tear down camp and help you butcher. Someone so, had to work. Okay. Exactly, I'm sorry. Exactly. Exactly. And you guys knew that I wasn't going to be there the first week, that but anyway, true. that is true. Good we point. all help where we can. Exactly. Um, Without further ado, we appreciate you guys uh, continually listening and just know that the fellowship and being out there in God's creation is what it's all about. We we are extremely good friends. That's why we can cut up and, and dish it out to each other. We all have thick skin, and we know each other really well, and I'm sure that's how you guys are out there at your guys' uh, group, group hunts and different camps. So that's part of what makes the experience is just being out there with good friends and family and uh we're all we're all brothers in christ so mikey if you can close us out please all right lord god we're just uh, so thankful that we can uh, come together and and elk hunt lord as as a community and to learn and to share our learnings lord i just thank you for safety lord and we know that you know that there was a lot of obstacles that we encountered during this hunt, and we we're able to look at all the great positives. And, and throughout life and through our hunts, there's always going to be a, a roller coaster of emotions, of ups and downs, and things that could potentially go wrong. But I just know that you're in complete control, and I just ask that our listeners are blessed, Lord. And I also ask your prayer upon Israel, Lord, as we know that there's tremendous fighting that's happening across the country, and here we are in America talking about all continent and enjoying. In Jesus' name, we pray. We love you. Amen. 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 Amen.